This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I'm joined by Blake Joyce, the Assistant Director of Research Computing at the University of Arizona, and a combined ecologist, biologist, and bioinformatician. If you remember a little while back, we interviewed Julian Pistorius, the biology curious coder. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Blake, who is the code curious biologist. So Blake, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you, Vanessa. It's great to be here. Let's first talk about your background. Tell us how you became code curious biologist. Oh boy, how long do we have? <laughs> My path has been pretty winding. I started off as an undergraduate in ecology, doing stream ecology, and then I got into triatrophic interactions, so looking at plants and their chemistry and how that affects herbivores, mostly caterpillars and other things, and then how the chemistry of the leaves and the plants affect the herbivores and then the predators of the herbivores. And so it turns out those chemicals get passed on to the herbivores as they eat the leaves and that affects what eats the herbivores. So I always found that a very fascinating, you know, just how complex the world is. I realized very quickly that half of the equation of phenotype is environment plus genetics. And so I was surprised that we weren't learning very many, well, really anything about genetics except for some population genetics. So I decided to become a geneticist. <laughs> which is funny if you consider, I actually failed my genetics undergraduate class three times, and then I went on to get a PhD in genetics. And in genetics, I realized very quickly that there was so much data to process that I had to learn bioinformatics. And as I delved into that, I realized very quickly that I needed to learn coding and computational infrastructure. After I graduated with my PhD, I moved out to Tucson and I started teaching at the local community college. And through a series of happenstance kind of situations, I've got a postdoc at Bio5, which is an interdisciplinary focused institute at the University of Arizona. From there, I started learning coding in Eric Lyons lab. And then I got into Cyverse as a science analyst. And that, that's when I realized that that's what my calling was, working with researchers and helping them bridge the gap between computing infrastructure analysis and doing what they needed to do to publish papers and, and get grants and things. That's actually when I became a fan of yours. Uh, I had heard about Singularity when I was at the UC San Diego Summer Institute. That was 2016. So those were early days, but they were talking about Singularity and I started using it. And that's when I saw your just give them the sandwich talk. I thought that was the best thing since, well, sliced bread, I guess. You know, it's been kind of piecemeal as, as you go along, adding on new knowledge each time and then trying to find ways to package that up and give that back to the research community. And then about two years ago, they hired me as the assistant director of research computing. The old director was retiring. I guess I had made a name for myself and I was recommended to apply for the job. And I was surprised that they hired a 34 year old for an administrative job at a major university. <laughs> and that's kind of my arc. It's been a lot of being in the right place at the right moment kind of situations. So first, your pun game is very strong. Those early days of singularity, and especially that sandwich talk where we gave out little monsters and containers were really, really fun. I want to ask you some quick ecology questions first. I've seen, I don't know, over the years, 
ideas about these robot farms. So instead of having a traditional farm with farmers sort of plowing, you have these sort of indoor things that are totally digitized and everything's being measured and robots are taking care of it. Is this just sort of hype I've seen on the internet or could this actually be a thing? So I would point you to the Netherlands. They're a very small country, but they actually produce quite a lot of food. And almost all of their agriculture has been mechanized, as you described. And quite a lot of it is greenhouse, greenhouse grown, and quite a lot of it is automated. There's a new concept, or not, not new, but it's certainly becoming, coming into its own, of precision agriculture. And I think that that's sort of the golden bullet. There's a lot of economic reasons why people would automate a lot of the fertilizer distribution, pesticide distribution, and a lot of the other processes. You know, right now, a lot of traditional farmers will just spray a whole field. Precision agriculture, especially with precision instruments, you can actually, I've seen fertilizer where it'll actually pick out which plants in the field need the fertilizer and will only spray that plant in an entire field. So the upside is you get very little runoff because you're not spraying a whole field, but you also save a lot of money as a farmer. There's a lot of interest because it kind of, it helps both sides. It helps the ecology, it helps the planet, but it also helps people. And there's some questions about whether the machinery will ever get cheap enough so that everyone can use it and things like that. It's very early days, but yeah, precision agriculture, I think is going to be one of those things we look back and it'll be kind of like remembering that people used to have tractors with wooden wheels or metal wheels. Interesting. So let's talk a little more about you. You said that you were lucky along the way, which sort of implies that you kind of were stumbling around possibly. Could you elaborate a little bit on that more? Yeah, of course. I kind of think that most people have a quality about them that kind of dictates their life. You know, some people are hardworking, any kind of quality you can imagine. Mine is dumb luck, I'm pretty sure of. I do happen to find myself in the right place at the right time quite a lot. You know, I came to Tucson without a job. It took me about four months or so to find a teaching job. And that was, that was pure luck. A friend of mine that I happened to know said, hey, there's not a lot of jobs at the university, but you should maybe go over to Pima Community College and ask around. So I started doing that. And there's five campuses. About two months or three months later is when I got a call saying that one of the teachers had to leave suddenly. And can I teach next week? And I said, sure, I've got nothing else I'm doing. I'll, I'll go teach next week. I just loved it. And it was a perfect fit. And I started teaching three classes there. And from that job is how I found my postdoc. It's networking, I guess, at some level, but a lot of it was just like perfect timing, fell in my lap, go try this thing out. That's the thing that I would take away. A lot of scientists and researchers in general are told you have to specialize. You have to focus on one thing that you are the world expert on. I would argue that not all of us have to do that. In fact, I didn't do that at all. I find that being a generalist actually fairly powerful and is probably part of why I found where I found myself. If a biologist or ecologist needs to learn genetics and a geneticist needs to learn bioinformatics and then a bioinformatician needs to learn coding, data management, and general research software engineering practices, what niche is actually left for someone that doesn't want to have five different career paths? So for example, is pursuing a career in biology or genetics signing up for that entire pipeline? I think that there is room for expertise. I think the advantage of having been all these things I have is that I can draw on each of those and bring those teams together. But the teams that I work in are experts in each of those individual fields. 
I think a lot of people in research these days think of research computing as, well, we have researchers, and I use that term very broadly. Anyone who has data and asks questions of data is a researcher in my mind. That's half of it in most people's mind, and then the other half is the coding. But I would argue there's actually three groups that you need to bring together, and that is the computing infrastructure people, professionals who run machines or who know how to scale analyses. You have to have the researchers to have insight into what they're trying to do and what problems they're trying to solve. And you have to have the coders and you really have to have all three of those people talking to each other in a group. In the last few years, I've seen a lot of these figures where they have a Venn diagram and they've got stats, science, and math equals data scientists in the middle. But I don't know very many people who can do all those things. And the few that do are kind of unicorns. I would argue that you need three people who have those expertise to work together in groups. And I think that people who are moving further as fast as in research computing space, especially, usually have each of those groups represented and they work together closely. But I think research software engineering is much the same. We forget that a lot, I think. So I would say, I would, I would agree with you that you want experts and you want expertise in each of those realms, but you want them all hanging out together and working together. That's a really interesting point that you need those three components and it makes perfect sense. Let's say you have an institution and the institution does have some kind of cluster resource. Traditionally, that would mean that they'd first have system administrators that serve user tickets and help with authentication, et cetera, et cetera. But that is fundamentally different from a research software engineer who's focused on like what exactly is running on the cluster. So when you don't have that third part of the triangle, when you just have the researchers and the cluster admins, you likely, not, not for sure, you could have some great coders in the labs, but you likely will lead to code that maybe isn't reproducible and has all these issues that we've run into. And that's when the center says, huh, we need research software engineers. I've yes. seen that pattern a couple of times. I like kind of visualizing it as this like symbiotic sort of relationship. Yes, I, I agree with that. You know, when I started into the computing world, most of how I learned was, here's a book, go read it, ask some questions. And that was brutal and painful. <laughs> and so anything that I could do in a day to keep researchers and software engineers and cyber infrastructure professionals from having to do that sort of thing, I'm happy to do. But it's just as you say, the, the very traditional mindset is we provide zeros and ones. You know, we provide cycles to people. They have to figure out everything else. The hallmarks of those systems are how many petaflops they have or how many teraflops they have. That's part of why it was so illuminating. When I heard your talk about just give them the sandwich, I realized that I wasn't alone. <laughs> Finally, that there were other people who cared. And that's sort of why I started coming around to the concept of research software engineers and research computing being this mixture of people. When you kind of look at what's being glamorized for research computing, it's sort of always a story like, my cluster is bigger than your cluster, but we have the biggest yeah. clusters. And you're like, yeah, but I don't know how to transfer my big files. Or I don't have software, for example, a container, so I can log in one day and do a thing and then log in the next day and have the same thing done. Be sure. That yes, exactly. And, and I think those days are going away, or at least we're starting to shift and realize the science is the end, right? Not, not the zeros and the ones, it's the actual outputs and how reproducible they are and lots of other things that I think were very difficult for people who were in cyber infrastructure that ran clusters. Traditionally, they were sysadmins. And what they understood was sysadmin things. It was hard for them to understand the research. And so 
that's why they never really focused on research outputs. And I think that's why some of these things have, have traditionally been the way they are. But now I think that there's a lot more people of different backgrounds coming into this space and we're all working together. And I think ultimately that's going to make us way more efficient, but also way more understanding and more open to new ideas and making things easier and I think it'll be, make the research itself more efficient. So I think everyone stands to gain. And interestingly enough, I think with the recent COVID stuff going around, it's actually allowed for a better metric, a shared topic that everyone can write about on their blog. Like, hey, look at all these projects and these research that have come out of our cluster. Instead of just focusing on, we have this many nodes and this much memory and et cetera. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And we've become very popular now. You know, our usership basically doubled fairly fast, and I think that's great. And I think that that means that a lot of people can get into this space and, and start to learn these things. So let's talk a little bit more about this research software engineering path, because I think what's apparent is that for both of us, it didn't really feel like something that was available. Like the pressure is to graduate and then be a postdoc or pursue some kind of traditional academic position. When you're looking at your role now and you're thinking about what a research software engineer is, how do you view yourself? Because looking at the things that you do, for example, in your biography, you mentioned a lot of machine learning and notebooks. Those are a lot of things that I think an RSC would do, but you also are interesting because you're sort of in a manager or authority position for research computing. So that might get you a little bit further away from the code. So how do you view yourself in the context of being an RSC? I don't know if I can truly claim the research software engineer title. I work with a lot of research software engineers. I think my job is to give context and to give insight, to provide the vision more so than to provide any amount of code. You'll see, if you look through my GitHub, my code is awful. And everyone says that, but I think my code is truly awful. I treat my position very much like I would if I was a professor. I ask questions of what we're doing and make sure that we're making decisions based off of the best data available. A lot of my job is to listen to research software engineers and then provide answers to their questions and to provide why they're doing what they're doing. You need to have a clear vision of why you're doing what you're doing. Oddly, in my position, because I do lead a team, we also are very service oriented. And again, that gets back to that concept of how do we help the researchers be as efficient and as good at their jobs as they can? And if they're doing really great work, then they will get publications and grants that will flow through the university. That means groups like mine who are paid by the university will also benefit and it's a virtuous cycle. And so I spend a lot of my day kind of reading tea leaves and staring into the inky black of the future to see the shapes and try to get ahead of problems before they occur but also just to try to minimize impacts that we have to our researchers as things change. Maybe I'm a research software engineer and more underlying an engineer. I architect a lot of things, but I don't do a lot of the coding day to day. And so that, that's a little odd, I guess, in some ways. I, I do everything but the software. <laughs> How would you say that a research software engineering manager differs from maybe a research computing manager? Because it seems that you sort of wear both hats, but I would guess that a research software engineering manager is more sort of in touch with talking about the software in context of what the researcher needs and working with RSEs. And the research computing manager may be more focused on, okay, are our services running? How many tickets yeah. do we have? And I, I'm only one part of a, of a very large team. 
my boss, Jeremy Frumkin, is the research technologies director, but we also have an infrastructure team who is overseen by Todd Mary, and they're the sysadmins, and Todd's a developer. And so they're in charge of keeping the machines running and all of those things you described. The University of Arizona sits in a very interesting middle ground. We're not as big as the UCs, and we don't have as much funding. So we have to be very efficient with the funding that we have. And we're really grateful that we have funding from the university to purchase machines. So I think that that need for efficiency is what drives my position to go a bit differently than many research computing groups would normally go. The, the trouble is, is we are big enough to be in the top 50 research, you know, R1 research universities. So we have a lot of people to help and we have a very tight budget to do that with. Long story short, that need to help as many people as we can with as little overhead as possible is what makes us look for better and better solutions. Yeah, it's really important to have a mindset like that. It's sometimes not just easy, but necessary to take a very risk-averse mindset where you aren't open to trying new things and interfaces. And then, you know what? We would have just a command line access and we wouldn't have anything else. So that's Yeah, a good and one. I've been very lucky. My group and all the people I work with are very open-minded. All they ask is to understand why we're changing things. And then they've been very good about being patient with me. <laughs> so I've been extremely lucky in that regard. Ah, the lucky coming back again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so we're coming up on time. I'll just ask you one more question. So when you look in those inky blocks that you mentioned when you're thinking about the future, is there anything that you've seen that you care oh, to boy. share? Well, uh, looking into the future these days is, can be a little depressing, I'll say, but all of the, the world issues aside, I think the name of the game, at least in the research software engineering space, and certainly in the cyber infrastructure or computing resource space, the name of the game going forward is going to be efficiency. There's a lot of ways to think about efficiency, and I've mentioned it a few times. Really, what I'm talking about is uh, I was at a CAST meeting. It's a grouping of lots of people who run research computing groups or people who are associated with research computing. And we were sitting down one meeting. It was actually my birthday, so we all went out to dinner. The topic came up of machines aren't getting faster. We're kind of hitting this like limit of how many cores you can stick into a machine. A lot of these folks who have been in this space for 30 or 40 years, you know, the experts were bemoaning that the glory days were over. I'm ad-libbing a lot here and taking out a lot of conversation because this was like a six-hour conversation. But really the takeaway I found from that was they were sad that like Moore's law was dying. And my response to that was, well, I mean, yeah, our machines are getting a lot faster, but we, we still have a lot of efficiencies to gain from just making code better and allowing researchers to do their analyses faster and more easily and at, at scales that we haven't done traditionally. And there's a ton of work to be done, again, in this research software engineering space of like thinking about systems and making them more user-friendly and making them more responsive to needs. And that, to a lot of the people who were there, and these are close friends because they were at my birthday party, right? Basically my birthday dinner. And that was a foreign concept to them. And that made me a little nervous. And so I think that that's the future is those sort of things. And the sooner we grasp onto that future, the better off we'll all be. I totally agree. And thank goodness for all that job security, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Especially in these times, that's, that's been nice, I'll say. <laughs> So Blake, thank you so much for coming on RC Stories today and also continue to be loud and share the things that you're working on and look for people to work with you in open source. We're working on a lot of these problems together and I think the better that we can do that, the faster we'll be able to solve this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I 
100% agree with having things open source and building communities around those sort of things. And I look forward to doing that more and more in the future. And thank you for having me. It's been an honor.